Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As many of you who have listened to this podcast previously know, each week we have an opportunity to discuss the parasha, the weekly reading from the Torah scroll that is heard Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday in synagogues. This week's Torah portion, in known in Hebrew as Vayishlach, uh, comes from Genesis 32 through Genesis 36. Let me give you an overview of the portion before we dwell into some depth. Um, in this week's parasha, Jacob returns to the land of his birth, the Holy Land, after a 20-year stay in Haran, and sends angel emissaries to Esau in hope of a reconciliation. But his messengers report that his brother is on the war path with 400 armed men. Jacob prepares for war, prays, and then sends Esau a large gift in order to appease him. That night, as he prepares to meet his brother, Jacob ferries his families and possessions across the Yabok River. He, however, remains behind and encounters the angel that we are unclear of who it is, with whom he wrestles until daybreak. Jacob suffers a dislocated hip during the wrestling match, but vanquishes the supernal creature who bestows upon him the name Yisrael, Israel, which means he who prevails over the divine. Subsequently, Jacob and Esau meet, embrace, kiss, but part ways. Jacob purchases a plot of land near Shechem, whose crown prince, also called Shechem, abducts and rapes Jacob's daughter Dina. Dina's brothers Simeon and Levi avenge the deed by asking all the male inhabitants of the city to be circumcised in order that a marriage may take place. And then while they are recovering from the circumcision, there is a slaughter of the male inhabitants of Shechem. Jacob journeys on. Rachel dies while giving birth to her second son, Benjamin, and is buried in a roadside grave near Bethlehem. Reuben loses the birthright as the firstborn because he interferes with his father's marital life. And Jacob arrives in Hebron, to his father, Isaac, who later dies at age 180, according to the text. The parasha concludes with a detailed account of Esau's wives, children, and grandchildren. The family histories of the people of Seir, among whom Esau settled, and a list of the eight kings who ruled Edom, the land of Esau and Seir's descendants. 
it is a parasha filled with very interesting verses and interesting episodes. And with me this morning to speak about it is Rabbi Simcha Bob, who is the Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation Eitzchayim in Lombard, Illinois. He serves as an adjunct faculty member at Wheaton College and Elmhurst University, also in Illinois. He is the author of two books, Jonah and the Meaning of Our Lives, and Go to Nineveh, uh, published both about Jonah. He is currently writing a new book on Ezra and Nehemiah. And as he reminded me, we were in rabbinical school together and represented the seminary on a baseball team. One of us had the skills to play baseball well. It is a pleasure to welcome Simcha to our show this morning. And we want to begin with a very powerful, powerful section of this parasha. In Genesis 32, verse 10, we read the following. Vayomer Yaakov Elohe Aviv Avraham the Elohe Aviv Yitzchak. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O God who said to me, Return to your native land, and I will deal bountifully with you. I am unworthy of all the kindness that you have so steadfastly shown your servant. With my staff alone, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Deliver me, therefore, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, else I fear he may come and strike me down, mothers and children alike. Rabbi Simcha Bob, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Um, It's an honor to be here. And this prayer is certainly um, a powerful expression of uh, worship, perhaps one of the earliest expressions of worship we have in the Torah. So why don't we begin our conversation right there with Genesis 32.10. So Jacob speaks to God with a prayer of humility. He humbles himself. He says, um, there's a Hebrew word at the beginning of verse 11, katonti. It's a really fun Hebrew word. First, I just like how it sounds, katonti. Um, Many people who know a little bit of Hebrew know that katan means small. So katonti is I made myself small. I'm making myself small before you. That he's humbling himself, as it says in English, before God. And what's most interesting to me is that Jacob, when we first met him earlier in the book of Genesis, was hardly humble. He was filled with himself. His name, in English we call him Jacob. In Hebrew, he is called Yaakov. And we're told he's called Yaakov in last week's portion because he was born holding onto the heel of his older brother Esau. So the Hebrew word for heel is Ekev, and he's the heel holder onto er, 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 and he is Yaakov. I always think of the young Jacob as a heel. 
He's sneaky. He's manipulative. He's not, he is certainly not noble. But here, at a crisis moment in his life, he becomes humble. He doesn't say to God, save me, I deserve it. He doesn't say to God, protect me, I've earned it. He says, Katonti, I am humbling myself before you. I am undeserving of all the blessings that I have received. Now, this is an important need for us. I think too often as modern people, we get very filled with ourselves and very filled with hum- our collective human accomplishments and our individual personal accomplishments. And we want to say, look at me, look at all I've done, look at all, all that I have accumulated. Um, so in your reading of the text, do you have any sense of what transforms Yaakov, Jacob, from the young person who steals uh, his brother's birthright for a bowl of lentil soup <laughs> or who uh, um, confuses his father by dressing up as his brother and changing his voice uh, and again steals the blessing. Do you have any sense of why he's made this transformative uh, act uh, or what has transformed him from the young uh, narcissistic youth of early Genesis until this humble person now? So, First of all, he's grown up. He is not a teenager anymore. He's not a filled with himself teenager. He's a mature adult. So I think that has happened. Secondly, he has responsibilities. He has wives and he has children and he has flocks and he has herds. He has people who are counting on him. And finally, he encountered his uncle Laban. And while the young Jacob deceived other people, his uncle Laban deceived him. And he got to feel what it, he got to experience what it feels like to be the deceived rather than the deceiver. Perhaps we should remind the listeners of that episode. Oh, it's it's lessons in dating. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the listeners may remember that after Jacob steals the blessing from his um, brother Esau and has confounded his father Isaac uh, by misleading him, at his mother's advice, he flees and goes to live with his uncle Lavan. Um, And there he falls in love with the beautiful Rachel, and believes that he has an agreement with his uncle uh, that he will work for seven mm-hmm. years in order to be offered the hand of Rachel in marriage. And on his uh, the morning after his wedding, he wakes up to discover that the woman in his marital bed is not Rachel, but her sister Leah. And having consummated the relationship, she is his wife, and he goes back to Lavan and accuses him of deceiving him. 
Uh, and as uh, Simcha Bob, Rabbi Bob, has indicated, now he has had his comeuppance and he recognizes what the seed is. And he has to work another seven years uh, to win permission to marry Rachel. And um, the text is very clear that uh, Rachel is his perceived wife and that Leah is uh, the second in emotions, if not the first in uh, priority. Um, and like um, Jacob and his brother, the younger will rule the elder. Um, and so we're reminded that perhaps he's had a lesson in what it means to be deceived. He, the deceiver. Uh, so you good. good. The young Jacob thinks he's the smartest guy in the tent. And um, he finds out that there are other smart people in the world also. And that um, the world does not revolve around him. This is maturity. Learning that we're in community with other people, we're in family bonds with other people, that the, the well-being of other people is, as, is important to us. In the book of Leviticus, we're told we should love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So here, Jacob first has to learn how to love the members of his family as he loves himself. <laughs> then he can start thinking about um, neighbors. So, I, I suppose the text is really... Um more than hinting, but saying outright that that an adult is one who grows beyond a narcissistic self-interest. Right. Um, and that the prayer that um, you've called to our attention is an indication of not simply um, Jacob's recognition that there is something greater than himself in, in this situation it's God, but his recognition that he is not the center of the universe. Right. And this is what we hope for human beings, a point we hope human beings will get to. Those of us who've had the honor to be parents and raise children, um, we can think of our children as teenagers, and we can think of our children as adults. I have adult children and now grandchildren, and my adult children are mature and responsible. And I get along really well with them now. <laughs> One of them did not, and I did not see eye and eye when she was 12 years old. Now that she's 42, we're just fine. <laughs> it's amazing how much you've learned yeah. in those 30 years. So, so I wanted to call our attention to another expression of Jacob's humility in this prayer. You know, he says that only with the staff he passed over the Jordan, that when he ran, when he left the land, he had nothing. So my friend Rabbi Garten and I became friends when we had nothing. We were young. We were young, we were young rabbinic students um, just at the beginning of our careers. Um, when I read this verse now in the Jacob story, I read it differently than I did when I was 25. You now at the age of 70, I feel like I'm Jacob, that I'm, I've prospered. I have children and grandchildren. I have a home. <laughs> I have more than one coat. <laughs> and, and you've been blessed with longevity of life. Yes, no, I, have, I have all sorts of things. And that when Jacob says, with only my staff, I crossed this river when I left, I identify with that. 
that the, the text reminds me of the path of my own life, that I began with very little to my name, and that's over a long period of time through diligent work and being a responsible adult. Um, I've built for myself a good name in the community and, uh, and a family. Um, and, that it's- and maybe the Torah text um, in this wonderful expression of prayer is giving us something to consider about what is the essence of true prayer. Um, as I read this, and as you pointed out to us, Jacob recognizes that how he sees himself is very much a component of what his prayer is. His acknowledgement that I am unworthy of all the blessings in his life, that I began with um, very little, and now I come before you in humility, allows me to um, be in communication with the divine. Had he come perhaps in a previous incarnation as a uh, less than humble teenager or young adult, the prayer might have sounded very different. Well, the prayer that he offers after the dream on his way out of the land, so when he leaves the land of Israel, on his, what will be called the land of Israel, land of Canaan, on his way to, to Uncle Laban, you know, he lays down to sleep and has this dream of the ladder going up to heaven and angels going uh, up and down and God speaking him to him from the top of the ladder. There the prayer is very self-centered. There he says, oh God, if you protect me and if you take care of me and if you bring me back, then I'll serve you. <laughs> it's right. a very self-centered prayer. And that prayer, this new prayer, this humble prayer, in great contrast to the prayer of the young Jacob. The prayer of the young Jacob is, um, God, aren't you lucky you get to protect me? <laughs> and uh, this prayer is, uh, no, God, um, I'm lucky that you have protected me. You know, I think that when we pause to praise God before we eat, we are acknowledging our position in the world, our humble position in the world. Um, one of my friends once told the story about going to see the great uh, Jewish thinker Abraham Joshua Heschel give a lecture. And I said to him, oh, how was Heschel's lecture? This was somebody I knew in college. And he said, there was one great moment in the lecture. And I said, oh, what did, what did Rabbi Heschel say? And he said, no, it's what Rabbi Heschel did. Rabbi Heschel was giving this lecture before a couple hundred people. And in the middle of the lecture, he poured himself a glass of water. And he stopped and said a blessing before he drank the water, right in the middle of the lecture. That in the middle of the lecture, with hundreds of people who have come to see the great Rabbi Heschel share wisdom with the community, he stopped to thank God for the water. That he understood his position vis-a-vis God. That there was there was humility in him, and um, I think that mo- I think modern people need to remember to be humble, remember to be grateful, and. Um, not to take our very existence for granted. It's a wonderful lesson of Torah. Um, and it's uh, in the midst of what appears to be somewhat of a uh, powerful, uh, dramatic moment 
we're at the penultimate uh, experience of Jacob and Esau meeting, the text tell, takes us in a way that perhaps we had not expected. Uh, just prior to this in the narrative, uh, Jacob has sent his wife and his children and his servants away uh, in order to ensure their safety. Um, and now he looks within himself um, in a way that is quite different than we might have expected, this kind of self-reflection, which is um, which may be the moment where Jacob becomes one of the patriarchs of the Jewish people, because uh, certainly not for the behaviors prior to this um, should we think of him as being one of the patriarchs other than through lineage. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about this reunion, though. Um, there's so much in the parasha, um, and we won't even have an opportunity to talk about the episode of Dina. But in <laughs> chapter 33, we read the following. So Esau, looking up, Jacob saw Esau coming, accompanied by 400 men. He divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maids, putting the maids and their children first, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. He himself went on ahead and bowed low to the ground seven times until he was near his brother. Verse 4, Esau ran to greet him. He embraced him, and falling on his neck, he kissed him, and they wept. So here's Esau, the man who's been wronged in the previous eight chapters of Genesis, uh, now uh, reacting to seeing the brother who's cheated him out of everything with kisses, and he too uh, is portrayed as somebody who's humble. Both brothers are dynamic. Both brothers change which is what makes it a wonderful story. Here, Esau, who the text has described as a man of the field, a tough guy, a hunter. Yeah. I picture him as a defensive tackle or as a, <laughs> a professional wrestler. When I was a kid in Minnesota, there was a professional wrestler called the Crusher. I would talk like this. And I've always imagined that Esau talks like this, that he's a, a real tough guy. But here, the real tough guy sees his brother after 20 years, his brother who he threatened to kill. When Jacob leaves, Esau says, I'm going to kill him. But he, and he reaches out with his hands. And Jacob, we can imagine that Jacob was fearful that Esau was going to now kill him. But he doesn't. He embraces him and he kisses him. He forgives him. That he is able to forget about or at least set aside the negative things that Jacob did when they both were young. Too often in families, people hold grudges. Remember that we see families come together for big events, weddings or funerals, and that people are carrying suitcases that contain more than just clothes. They're, containing, they're bringing in luggage, emotional luggage from previous events or previous eras previous stages in life, and it's unfortunate. The people can't let go of the disappointments they had from a previous time. Here, 
Esau is able to do it. Esau, the big tough guy, is able to be the caring brother. He's able to forgive Jacob. He doesn't ask for an explanation. He doesn't ask for a payment. He resists the gifts that Jacob has sent him. He is ready to welcome Jacob home and forgive him. They don't live move in next door to each other. They don't live across the street. It's not a sitcom. They're not part of each other's everyday lives. No one becomes anybody else's butler. Um, they, but they do make peace. Jacob I, grows up. Esau grows up. They're able to both be adults respecting one another, which I think what the what God is asking us to do is to grow up, to forgive, not necessarily to forget, but to at least forgive and to act like responsible adults and not be keeping score for our whole lives. You know, I have a brother who's two years younger than me. And when we were brothers, we, when we were young, we're still brothers, when we were young, <laughs> we were more attentive to who got more. So if my mother would say, all right, I have a brownie for the two of you to, to, to share, we did like many siblings do. One of us cut it in two parts, and the other one got to pick a part. So we were all we were highly motivated to try to divide it right in half. Uh, these days, we're able to share things without having to divide them so uh, so carefully. Um, but if I look at my brother myself, uh, we don't bounce against each other anymore in the way we did when we were little boys. We've grown up. Um, we both we both had good and successful careers, have done good things for the larger community, and we care about each other. Our kids care about each other. Our, my kids care about his kids. Um, that's how we want our lives or want our families to be. Sometimes it's frustrating and it's disappointing when members of the family can't be like that. I, like many people, have some relatives who are just uh, angry all the time or so angry they can't be part of the family. Um, it's, it's, it's disappointing when that happens. It's um, an interesting lesson. This entire parasha seems to be an interesting lesson in these times of COVID. Yes. In which we're asked to trust people and trust people even if we don't have um, – a perfect experience with them, that there are events in history that make us um, not want to trust them. And yet, um, for the sake of our community, for this preservation of human life, uh, trust becomes uh, imperative. And the basis of trust is being able to put aside grudges, as we see Esau able to do, and being to acknowledge that the world doesn't revolve around each and every one of us. Um, there are issues that the Torah portion suggests with regard to uh, how the distribution of vaccine will take place <laughs> and um, whether trusting the vaccine or not trusting it and how our individual behaviors uh, impact on other people uh, and whether 
Esau, whether would we have liked Esau better if he had slaughtered Jacob and said, look, the past, who can forget the past? Look what he did to me. Um, and yet Esau, who's not going to be the descendant of Abraham and Isaac, who's not going to be the progenitor of the Jewish people, is portrayed as what the Yiddish would call a mensch. I've moved beyond. I've grown up. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, opportunity for us to reflect on the times that we live in. Um, my guest this morning has been Rabbi Simcha Bob, uh, Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation Eitz Chaim in Lombard, Illinois. I hope that you've enjoyed his insights and his ability to bring the Hebrew text, the biblical text, uh, into our modern day lives. You can find a podcast of this morning's show on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and have a good day.